Welcome to the first ever Boar Sport podcast with me, your host, Luke James. Throughout the year, I'm going to be joined by guests from across campus and the West Midlands discussing the latest sports news and events. On today's show, which I must admit overran significantly, I'm joined by Rhys Goodall, Sam Matthews Bomer, and Oliver Barsby as we discuss the disruption to the sporting calendar caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In the first part of the show, Sam, Oliver and I talk about some of the newest content on the board.org, although we did become somewhat embroiled in a Messi versus Ronaldo debate. In part two, I catch up with Reese to talk about the cancellation of Wimbledon and the postponement of the French Open. Is this the end of the big three as we know it? In the second hour of the podcast, Sam and Oliver return to talk about what should be done with the Premier League. To void or not to void? That is the question. Finally, Sam, Oliver and I discuss our top five sporting moments of our lifetimes, taking in the Olympics, Ashes, Wimbledon and much, much more. Thank you so much for joining us for episode one. You can find the timestamps for each section in the description below. So feel free to pick out the topics that you're most interested in. Most importantly, from everyone at the Boar, stay safe, stay well and enjoy the Boar Sport podcast. And now I am joined by Sam Matthews Bomer and Oliver Barsby. Welcome both of you to the first ever The Boar Sport podcast. Um, to begin the show, we wanted to talk about some of the stuff that's been happening on the website recently. But before we got into that, I just wanted to ask, how are you both faring kind of amid this kind of social distancing era of our lives? Um, for me, it's extremely weird. I'm actually in the Netherlands at the moment, strangely, and flying over here in the airport it was one of the most kind of surreal experiences I've ever had I mean an airport which is usually such a bustling place as thousands of people is so eerily quiet and yeah it's just weird time that we're living in yeah and um I'm doing quite well actually I'm keeping myself busy with editing articles for the game section writing my six essays I have due in the middle of May and you know just generally watching a lot of Netflix a, a lot, a lot of Netflix. I've just watched that. What did you think of that? We've got an article on that soon by you, in fact. Yes, uh, stay tuned for that. I enjoyed it. Compare it to um, documentaries on Man City or Juventus or Mumbai Indians. And they're just sort of showing how, oh, we're such a good club. Look at us. We are so amazing. We win every single league, every single competition. It's just nice to see a brutally honest version of what every single club which doesn't win the league goes through. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I, thought, I thought it was I great. Got sense. I got that sense um, from watching it as well. It looked like... I watched, I've watched the first two episodes of the new series and it's just kind of far more real almost than the Man City mm. or Juventus documentaries that I saw. So yeah, I really liked it. Do we all... The characterisation that Charlie Methan, the kind of executive guy from Sunderland is the real life David Brent or, or do we object to that conclusion? Oh that's a is he, is he the posh guy? Yeah. He was um, a... yeah. I mean I've only watched the first two episodes at the moment, but he seems to me like quite professional. He seems quite quite good as opposed to David Brent. But yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know. The the thing that people have kind of picked up on social media was in the first episode 
where he's talking about the music oh, at yeah. the stadium yeah. was a little bit kind of Brent esque. But however, it, it, it is is a good it's good series. I recommend you check it out, and I recommend you check out our review by none other than Oliver Barsby. However, moving swiftly onwards, there were two things that I wanted to talk about on the website from the sports section that is is new to the ball over the last couple of weeks. So the first one you were both involved with was the Boar Sport expansion draft. Do any of you want to kind of take the opportunity to explain what it was essentially? Yeah, I can. Um, so a few weeks ago, me and Sam were both approached by Luke. Oh, he put on the sport writers chat to take part in a draft format where we take players from the top of the Premier League or all the Premier League sides, build a squad of 18 players, um, unlimited money, and we try and get the best team we can. And then we write an article on it, um, explaining why our squads are better than each other's. And then we also did a football manager tournament um, where we played each other twice. The winner of that, can I announce the winner, Luke, or is it not to be announced yet? Uh, go for it, go for it. Well, Sam won that competition pretty resoundingly. Convincingly. Yeah. Um, and then I was second and Luke came third. So it was quite good, though. I really enjoyed it. The draft was quite fun to do. Uh, it was a bit stressful at times when Sam took Patrick Van Anholt and picked before I was going to take him. <laughs> Apart from that, though, I think I got quite a few good players. Mm-hmm. And do you two yeah. still believe that you, you both had the best team? I still think oh, I yeah. do. I think... Yeah, I honestly believe in my team. And this sounds, as you'll learn when the article comes out on Sunday, I got absolutely hammered in the football manager tournament, which Mm -hmm. is somewhat embarrassing for the person who previously run a football manager website. Um, (laughs) A little bit embarrassed about that. But I I genuinely believed in my team. So I, I went for a very, very young kind of homegrown core to the squad. And mm-hmm. just kind of packed it out with a couple of star players. So I had Mo Salah on the right wing, Son on the left wing, Lacazette, who Oliver rightly pointed out in his article. I think it was Oliver who yeah, said this in the article. Isn't isn't the best, but I needed an Arsenal player, so I just took him basically, and I needed a mm-hmm. forward. Um, and then midfield, I had Declan Rice, James Madison, um, Bruno Fernandez, and at the back, I had Tyrone Mings, who I thought would be ever so dependable <laughs> at centre half alongside, I believe, Nathan Ake, Trent Alexander-Arnold, and I can't even remember. Oh, Lucas Digne at left-back. And then in goal, I had either Nick Pope or Gieta from Crystal Palace, which I personally think, on current form, is quite a good team. I think Football manager disagreed. Your, your midfield and your attack is, is very, very good. But I think your defence is kind of what lets you down. I mean, even Alexander-Arnold and Digne, they're not the best players defensively, are they? And Mings, I mean, Mings, I think football manager kind of proved what kind of player he is. I mean, he's, he's kind of done all right for Villa in the past season or two. But apart from that, he's quite limited as a footballer, really, isn't he? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think Mings is terrible on the ball. I think he's okay. I just think a bad day at the office on football but, manager. Odds. Who were your kind of top picks? Top picks, as in the ones we chose first, or the ones that you were kind of happiest with. Um. See, whilst I came second in the tournament, I wasn't actually that very happy with my team in general. I'd say the player who did well for me the best was Aubameyang because he did score a hat-trick in the first half against you, Luke, which was quite fun. 
to see. He did very well. Um, I can say my worst pick by far, Kevin De Bruyne in the Football Manager tournament. <laughs> he was abysmal, didn't get any goals, didn't get any assists. Always looked frustrated or nervous um, when I, <laughs> I looked at what he said. So that was not the best. But overall, I was quite happy with my team. So I'll do a little rundown like Luke did. I had, uh, now I had Leno. He did very well. Made some great saves. Kept me in a few matches. Centre-backs, I had Imrik Laporte and Sanchez. Then full-backs, it was Aaron, Qu- Aaron Creswell and... Who was on my right? Oh, Wan-Bissaka. Midfield, three of Giorgino, Martino and Kevin De Bruyne. And then Traore, Jimenez and Aubameyang up front. And I think what really undid me uh, in the end was Aaron Creswell. He was abysmal for me. He got sent <laughs> off in the fourth minute of our last match. Uh, leaving me down to 10 men put on Ryan Burton to replace him he probably did worse than if I just left a big gaping hole in my defence <laughs> lost the ball many times against Luke who had you got to think Luke had Salah and Alexander Arnold on the right <laughs> side attacking down Ryan Burton's throw he could not cope at all so it was not very fun yeah my team I don't as cocky as it may sound, I don't think there was a weakness anywhere on the pitch. I think every pick was uh, uh, done to perfection almost. So I had Van Dyke and um, Kasper Soyuncu at the back. The Leicester centre-back has been amazing this season um, with Patrick Van Aanholt and uh, Ricardo Pereira on as full-backs. I think they kind of offer a lot going forward and they might not be the best defensively, but when you got Van Dijk and Suyunku there, I think that's all the defensive support you need. Um, behind them, I had Edison, who I think is one of the best, if not the best keeper in the Premier League and kept me in a few games when other teams had chances. Um, my midfield, though, I would say was the strongest area of my team. I had uh, Kante sitting just in front of the defence with um, Pogba and Grealish either side of him. Those players kind of providing assists and goals in equal measure almost. Um, the side of the team that kind of let me down the most, I would say, was my attack, which kind of tells you how well I did in that football manager draft because they still scored a few goals. But um, it ended up being Pulisic, Harry Kane and uh, Richarlison, all of whom scored at some point in the tournament but didn't really kind of add those assists or as many goals as I would have liked, maybe. So, yeah, that was my team. See, I disagree yeah. that, you're, that you have no uh, weaknesses. I can see quite a few weaknesses in your team. <laughs> what would you say these weaknesses are, Oliver? Well, when we look at your team on paper, it looks like quite a good team, sure. But we've mm-hmm. got to consider this season still has happened. Despite the initial postponement, quite a mm-hmm. few players in your team have not done very well this season, which Football Manager didn't take into account. Which players are they, though? Edison they, has made many a mistake this season. Um, he's still kept quite a few clean sheets, though, hasn't he? And he's only, when I'm, only when I'm Rick Laporte's being playing for him, who was in my team. Um, Harry <laughs> Kane digi- has not had the best season, and Paul Pogba has seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, are, we, are we taking just this season into account, or are we taking their entire career? Well, well no, it, but... it depended how you wanted to pick yeah. your team. So the premise of the series, mm-hmm. was, series was basically, imagine this moment, the Premier League accepts three completely new franchises to join the competition, and then you get to pick the players that you would take 
at the moment, mm -hmm. which I would say is probably why on paper I arguably have the worst team, hence why I went for people like Tyrone Mings, because I thought on mm -hmm. current form, he's a good player, I'd like him, he's young, yeah. he's going to stick around kind of thing. Whereas someone, and the reason that, and Sam says this in his, in his article, the reason that someone like Harry Kane, who I realised quite early on hadn't been picked by anyone, the reason I didn't go in for him anyway was because he's so injury prone. Mm-hmm was the reason I kind of steered away from the likes of Kane, who yeah. spends more time. I can understand time. that. Yeah. I mean, I still think Kane is a very limited player, even even at his best, but I just, no one had picked him, and it was like the 10th pick, so I thought I may as well. Yeah, I agree, though, that Harry Kane is a very overrated player. Yeah, I think he's very, he scores goals, which is why I picked him, but apart from that, I don't really see what he offers. He scores tappins. Should have passed it to Sterling. Yeah, uh, cannot thing. Not the time, <laughs> nor the place. However, the second new thing to the website that I wanted to talk about before we get into the bulk of this episode. Next up, I'm going to be speaking to Reese Goodall about the tennis. The other thing I wanted to mention, though, is Great Debate, which is a new series to the Boar Sport, which I have kind of come up with and have had to have written half the articles for. The premise of it is basically where two different writers argue the sides of a great debate. The first one I published was Michael Schumacher versus Lewis Hamilton. The newest one that went on the website last Wednesday, as you listen to this podcast, was by myself and Sam, and it was Messi versus Ronaldo. What I would say about great debates is it's a really fun series, I hope, to read because it's lots of pictures, kind of lots of interactive stuff, and hopefully it's something you enjoy. However, going back to the writing of the article, Sam, what did you think kind of of the essentially? Sorry, what, I didn't quite catch that. Connection is slightly bad out here. What did you say on your article for Great Debates? What did I say on my article? Um, I think the nature of Great Debates and why it's such a good idea, Luke, is that kind of it divides people so much and makes people so passionate about certain subjects. And that was the case for me and uh, writing about Lionel Messi. So for me, as I say in my article, I think saying Ronaldo is a better player than Messi, a better player as a whole we're talking about, not necessarily a better striker or a better goal scorer. But saying Ronaldo is a better player than Messi for me is kind of, I just I struggle to see how people can argue that point. I know Oliver believes that, but I just... I just can't really see if you watch a game which Messi's involved in and you see all he does, you see what he does like basically every minute he's on the pitch when he gets the ball, when he's passing the ball, when he's shooting, when he's dribbling. Ronaldo does not replicate that in any aspect of his game. When Ronaldo gets the ball, kind of loiters on it, he does a few step overs maybe, but he never he never really does anything unless he's in the box. And when he is in the box, he shoots and most often he scores. But Apart from that, I don't really see how he can defend his corner in any way, and it's up to Oliver to prove me wrong in that in that respect. Well, I I can refute you if you want now, or Luke, do you mm -hmm. you wrote the other half? Do you want to go for it? Or yeah, so I wrote I wrote the other half for Ronaldo, and I should probably disclose that in this debate, I absolutely do not have an axe to grind. I support West Ham and we're not getting near any of these players in the in the near future. However, throughout kind of 
as long as I've followed football, which seems like forever, I've always preferred Messi over Ronaldo, which is why I was a little bit upset when Sam took took the pitch to argue for Messi. Um, because I genuinely thought you'd argue for Ronaldo. Um, I don't know why. You I thought I'd that. argue for Ronaldo. Yeah, for, for some reason, I, I've got into my head that you're a Man United fan. I don't know why. Coach United. No, I don't, yeah, they're similar. Similar. Um, similar. Yeah. So yeah, I got stuck arguing the Ronaldo side of the argument, and what I basically said um, was. And I think I cut a slightly more respectful tone than Sam perhaps mm-hmm. perhaps did, was that Ronaldo is the epitome of everything that it is to be a professional footballer. And he's achieved everything there is that you could possibly have won, barring the World Cup. But realistically, with Portugal, that's not exactly too realistic anyway, in multiple countries for multiple different teams. And I think kind of that is quite incredible he's been able to change his game so massively is quite awe-inspiring. So when he first joined Manchester United, he was a winger with a serious propensity to throw himself on the floor at every opportunity. Um, Wasn't particularly strong. Wasn't the physical force that kind of Sam recognises him to be now. Whereas you look at the end of his career since kind of the last couple of years at Real Madrid and especially Juventus, he's turned more into a target man poacher, good hold-up play, really great in the air, strong on the ball, although, of course, he's still got a um, flair for the theatrical. So that's why mm-hmm. I argued Ronaldo to be on par, if not better than Messi, although I wrote this article kind of searching my soul somewhat, but it'd be really hard to argue. And I, I guess this is where we let... Um, I find it hard to argue against kind of Messi's just natural brilliance and charm and magic every time he touches the ball. I think Ronaldo is just the clinical winner. And I think that's something to be celebrated too. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll link it before I let Oliver say his piece. I'll link it to my views on tennis. So as long as I follow tennis, my favourite players have always been Andy Murray, simply because he's our guy and out of the big three. I feel like everyone has a favorite out of Nadal, Djokovic, Federer. Mine has always been Roger Federer just because I just think he's the most kind of beautiful athlete. Yeah, his play style is just phenomenal. Well. So like I look at Federer the same way I do Messi and I just think, yeah, that's why I find it hard to argue for Ronaldo. However, Oliver, well, I have, in your big, I have a big three uh, in the tennis. I actually prefer Nadal. So I'll just say that first of all. But then in, yeah, Messi, Ronaldo, I think you're both, well, Sam in particular, you're looking at it a bit wrong. In the Messi, Ronaldo debate, you can't view them as playing the same role or compare them in that way because Messi is, yes, he has to dribble because he's not an out-and-out striker. He could never be an out-and-out striker or more of a centre-forward now because he's a bit too, he's been small. He's struggled with growth problems when he was a kid. He has to be that that amazing dribbler, that amazing... Ronaldo plays a fundamentally different role to him now. And when we compare the two players and their roles, I think Ronaldo does a much better job. And in history, if we look at the statistic wise, he will go down as the best player. He has won, uh, as as mentioned by Luke, he won the Euros. His, his international career has been much better than Messi's. I think Messi has been almost a disgrace to Ar- Argentina when he's been playing for them. You know, he has been. A disgrace. Uh, he has been a disgrace. He, he carried is... them to the twenty, I think, twenty fourteen World Cup final. If you watch yep. the highlights and of that he... World Cup final, he was Argentina's only outlet. He was carrying them 
on his shoulders more so i would argue than ronaldo was in the euros in 2016 you cannot say that did you not see ronaldo running down the touchline after he went off injured yeah, but urging was, them onto victory yeah he was running down the touchline but was he on the pitch was he doing anything on the well, pitch he, he was the whole as soon as the slightest as, as soon as, as the slightest injury. pressure came on his shoulders, he went down injured. If he was running down that touchline, why couldn't he still be running down on the pitch? That's I, I, harsh. I agree with that's harsh. Yeah, he uh, was hobbling I, down the pitch. I think it's more with the I, adrenaline I, I, surging. I, maybe that was a bit far, but um, but Oliver, I come back at you with on that. In that, yes, they play different positions, but the argument here is who is the best footballer, and I would argue that arguing who's the best footballer means you have to take into account every aspect of their game. And now you have to take into account their passing ability in terms of how they provide for their teammates. You have to take into account their dribbling ability. And of course, you have to take into account their shooting and their finishing. Well, I would disagree and, with that because surely if you're thinking who's the best footballer, then you'd have to think, well, how good is their defending? How good yeah, is their man? I, 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 that's, I would support for that Messi well. and Ronaldo, they, that's not relevant to them at all. Yeah, I know. I agree with you on that on that front. But the defenders that could come into this conversation don't come anywhere near Messi or maybe even Ronaldo in terms of their passing or their dribbling, as I was saying, or their shooting. And so I would argue that they defenders, as bad as it may seem for them, don't can't really come into this debate at all. What but I would Messi say is, what I would yeah. say though is that if you look at and again I'm kind of slipping my Ronaldo hat back on if you look at the contributions on both sides of the ball and kind of you're a team that is not one to shy away from hunkering down at the end of the game putting all your men in the box to defend a set piece you're taking Ronaldo over over Messi every single time and although Ronaldo has as I said in the article kind of a proneness to kind of strut around the as though he is a superstar which of course many people argue he is um, defending those set pieces, he's so often absolutely massive for his team. Well, that's simply just because he's taller, isn't it, Luke? I mean, he's massive in that he's a six foot one bloke, while Messi is five foot five or whatever it is. Yeah, so but my got... my point was in response to you saying, as a complete package as a footballer, and if we're saying as a complete package, you've got to look at what they can do on both sides of the ball. And if if we're being honest. And again, this isn't a criticism of Messi because it's part of his game. He just disappears on the pitch and then he pops up and he scores. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ronaldo sometimes will track back, will put in the almighty tackle and then everyone will kind of go a little bit crazy about it. So there's kind of both sides of that argument. What I would say as well is that Cristiano Ronaldo's goals to game record in La Liga is absolutely Ridiculous. So in his nine years at Real Madrid, Ronaldo scored 311 goals in 292 appearances. If we kind of... Nice. The obvious thing to do for me would be to compare him to Lionel Messi, who has notched 438 goals in 474 appearances. And then if we compare people further down the list, you have Raul, who scored 228 in 550 matches, and Telmo Zara, who was playing for Athletic Bilbao in the 40s and 50s, scored 251 in 278. So even in terms, and again, this cuts to the heart of the fact that they're two totally different players. Messi, for so much of his career, was the creative force, whereas Ronaldo, throughout much of the later half of his career, has just been simply about putting the ball in the back of the net. 
But if you look at the goals to game ratio, it's really interesting. That's another thing that you can kind of debate, I, I would say. Anyway. Yeah, but Luke, again, you're taking just the Liga into account. And if you look at their, I mean, at the moment, I'm on this bespoke Messi versus Ronaldo.net website where I got all my stats from my article as well. And in their career as a whole, Ronaldo's now played a thousand games, which I admit in itself is a pretty incredible achievement. And he's got 725 goals. While Messi is and 220 assists. While Messi in his career has played 856 times. But in that time, he's got 697 goals and 289 assists. So over overall, in terms of their whole career, Messi has got a better goal per game ratio. And he's also played less games than Ronaldo, but got more assists. Which well, which that is inevitable, because Ronaldo is, guess, is older than Messi, so he will, as he comes towards the end of the year, at the end of his career, have to sort of, well, he will tone it down in terms of how many goals and assists he gets for Juventus or whoever he moves to next, probably somewhere in America, I'd suspect. So we'll see what happens with Messi in the next few years, whether he'll even still be playing for Barcelona or whether he'll have to go somewhere else to prove himself. Well, you can't deny, you can't deny, Oliver, that Messi still at an earlier stage of his career than Ronaldo has only slightly less goals and he has more assists and he's played 150 less games, which kind of shows that well, you see Ronaldo as this great goal scorer, as this num- number nine as he's become later in his career. And you see Messi, as you say, as kind of a number 10 slash right winger. He's never kind of been able to play that number nine kind of role. But Messi, despite the fact he's not a go- meant to be an out-and-out goal scorer, he's still got almost as many goals and more assists, which kind of shows his all-round game is just better in every single aspect, I would argue. I fundamentally disagree. Well, I feel like we have had enough of fundamental disagreement for one day. Another couple of things uh, I just I just wanted Luke, to point can out. Say, can I just say one more thing? One more thing. Of course you can, Sam. Of course you can. So, Oliver, say I put you right now in front of a Barcelona game and yep. you watched Messi and you, the camera was just on Messi throughout the whole game and you saw how many times he picked up the ball, you saw how many number of times that he dribbled. And I did the same for you, putting you in front of a Juventus game watching just Ronaldo. You cannot you cannot say to me that Ronaldo would do more in that game, even if he scored a couple of goals. Well, he'll, you cannot say to me that you would... He'll probably have a bigger goals. impact on the game. If you're basing on pure touches, then you would say that like someone like N'Golo Kante is the greatest player to ever play, someone in the midfield. Well, who I'm not saying just touches, though, Oliver. I'm saying kind of what the the kind of things he does during the game, the number of key passes, the but number again, of... You're trying to give Ronaldo a role which he doesn't play to fit yeah, the messy I mean, narrative. I would argue that in Ronaldo's role, you can never be the best player in the world. We're never going to say that Olivier Giroud, I know it's a bad example, but we're never going to say that he could be anywhere near that conversation because he's just not that kind of play. He doesn't have that all all-round kind of game which comes into the best player of all time debate. You look at the other players that are in that debate, Pele, Maradona, Johan Cruyff, those kind of players, they're all they're all known for their all-round game. They're not known for their out-and-out goal scoring like Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo is. I mean, yeah, that's what I'd argue. That was a good debate. What I would say to everyone listening along at home as they, as they listen on with 
fire in their bellies, tweet in at Boar Sport on Twitter and let us know who would you prefer in your team, Messi or Ronaldo. Before we move on what, to the next what, segment... What does the poll say at the moment? Is it in Messi's favour? It depends what poll you look at. So Messi won the Twitter poll by, I think, 80% to 20%. And then on Instagram, which the Boar Sport is new to, so do follow the Boar Sport on Instagram, it was Ronaldo who won the vote. However, I must confess that my girlfriend has multiple Instagram accounts where she probably voted for Ronaldo. Anyway, moving swiftly onwards from democracy and ballot stuffing, a couple of other things I wanted to talk about that are currently on the website at the moment. So on the top page for the Borsball at the moment, it's all in kind of date order, but there was a couple of articles that I just wanted to point out. Um, the first one is by Reese Goodall, which is about how virtual, virtual Formula One has filled the void amid the COVID-19 disruption. Um, there's a couple of more too. So there's one called Sport Charity and COVID-19 offering help in hard times. That one is by Sadia and it just talks about how athletes around the world have banded together to help during this time of disruption. And then as we get back towards the top of the page, we have lots of stuff about the Bore Expansion Draft, which I really, really do recommend you check it out. It was a lot of fun to make and hopefully something fun to read. And then we have breaking news about Wimbledon, how the world of tennis can mitigate against the world against COVID-19 rather, and then the two great debate articles, Michael Schumacher versus Lewis Hamilton and Cristiano Ronaldo versus Lionel Messi. In one word, or two words rather, right now, Michael Schumacher or Lewis Hamilton, take your pick. Um, I, just know, I just don't like F1 really. It's a bit boring for me. Fair enough. I would say um, Michael Schumacher. Hamilton, Hamilton possibly, if he wins in the next couple of years, I would say, then Hamilton takes it. Yeah, so, I, I think that's probably the direction of travel. I think if, especially, well, the question mark as well would be if the Formula One World Championship even happens this year, obviously given the current situation. But I think if Hamilton continues to world, world win World Championships at the rate the argument that Schumacher was better might have to start to fade in that article i did argue for michael schumacher um so that one should be an interesting watch too however now on the boar sport podcast we're going to move over to the second segment of the show as i talk to reese goodall about the disruption to the grand slam tennis calendar And now over into the second segment of the Boar Sport Podcast. I'm now joined by Reese Goodall. How are you, Reese? I'm very well, Luke. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So the second part of today's show, we wanted to talk about kind of the pandemic has had on the world. And the world of tennis has been acutely impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. The ATP and WTA last month it was announced that the suspension of professional tennis had been extended june ruling out the entire clay court season after that the french open which had been scheduled to start on 18th of may has been postponed into the 20th of september just the open was due to finish so on the 1st of april it was announced that wimbledon will not be returning until 2021 so reese she was the person who wrote the article about Wimbledon's cancellation for the ball, kind of what's been going on with kind of Wimbledon at the moment. 
Um, so as we know, um, the decision to cancel Wimbledon has been made. Um, it's sh shaken up the world of tennis, particularly in the UK. Um, and it was kind of seen as it was inevitable um, as a result of the coronavirus and the government guidelines on large gatherings. Um, even so, it's been a very reluctant call. Um, this is the first time in which Wimbledon has had to be cancelled since the Second World War, uh, to give you some idea of the seriousness. Um, and it's looking like it may cost the All England club who um, are in charge of the games at least 200 million in sort of ticket fees, uh, paying out broadcasting policies. And there's been a talk of rescheduling, but I don't really see that happening this year. And um, as we, it's mainly a sort of summer grass court event and you can't really play that in the winter. Yeah, so for sure, that that's kind of the situation as it is now. So with Wimbledon at the minute cancelled and not coming back until 2021, at least it's not kind of... You could host a grass court competition in London in, say, November, for example. It doesn't seem particularly <laughs> realistic. Um, so that kind of that kind of leaves the tour up in the air. So at the minute, there will be no tennis until the seventh of June, which means that the next Grand Slam that could possibly take place is the U.S. Open after the summer has through its heyday. Um, yeah. Kind of the top and the creme de la creme of the WTA and the ATP. At the minute, Roger Federer is 38, Serena Williams is 38, Rafael Nadal 33, and Novak Djokovic 32. Of course, this comes, right. and especially so for Federer and Williams, right at the end of their career, a big impact on kind of them being able to win any more Grand Slams. Yeah, I think definitely so. I mean, we've seen... Um... We've seen some sort of fun Instagram clips of Fedra playing tennis at home. Um, and Serena Williams has been quite vocal on how the lack of any tennis season will impact her. And obviously all these players are getting a lot older and it will only realistically be a few more years that they'd be able to play at most um, before age really does become an issue. I mean, that they've still playing now has left a number of commentators in shock. And so... I see it's probably a bit up in the air. If they don't really make a big comeback next year when tennis resumes, I don't really see them making a comeback at all. Yeah, that's the thing as well. And if you look at the number of Grand Slams currently on both the men's and the women's side of the game, the all-time leading figure, Rafael Nadal is on 19, and then Novak Djokovic, who I should say is 32 years old at the moment, is on 17 Grand Slams. Over on the women's side of the game, Margaret Court leads the way with 24 Grand Slams. Williams is on 23, and Steffi Graf on 22. So, of course, Roger Federer would have missed the French Open through injury anyway, but it's another opportunity at Wimbledon that he won't be able to kind of get another one and kind of pull away. Meanwhile, Williams hasn't won a Grand Slam for several years now since coming back kind of from her time away from the tour. It's not looking yeah. potentially great for either of them, would you say? You know, I mean, Williams has been very vocal in that she's wanted to uh, claim the women's title. So maybe there'll be an incentive for her to sort of push it a bit longer. And But with the big three male players still going, realistically, with the amount of grandsons, if the season returns at all next year, they're only going to get one, two more at most each. I mean, Djokovic may probably still last a little longer, but you can't help but feel this is really going to put a capper on this era of tennis. 
Yeah, definitely. I think with Federer, especially, this is kind of the start of the end. I think Williams probably has slightly more prospect of maybe coming out the other side of this slightly more unscathed. But for Federer, it's looking a little bit more sketchy. Of course, he's out injured at the minute with, I think it's either an ankle or a knee issue once again, which has meant that he's missed the clay court season. Um, And it kind of, again, where when Federer... It never looked like he was going to win another Grand Slam title. And then he went to Wimbledon in 2017, dumbfounded all of the critics, and took another title. Um, so I guess you can never really count them out. But it's just the case of saying at the moment it's looking kind of particularly... Um, moving slightly on as well, where tennis on the professional level has been suspended. All of the world rankings, the, the status quo will prevail. Do you think that's the right move, given that obviously players like Federer are going to age over this period and potentially they're going to keep the rankings when perhaps they shouldn't? I think that's probably the fairest call at the moment. I think maybe realistically, when uh, when everyone's able to play again, there could be a readjustment of the rankings, perhaps some kind of you know physical assessment. But I think for the moment, that's probably the fairest call. You can't really fiddle with rankings at a time when no one's able to play. Yeah, I, de- I definitely agree with that, to be honest. I think that that's definitely rankings at the minute. Novak Djokovic is world number one, TM at number three, and Federer in the British contingent. If we go further down the list, I believe minute. I did just see him. 28 in the world, and obviously Andy Murray currently maligned by injury at the minute outside, I believe, of the top 100. Not in a positive way, but do you think this might give Andy Murray an opportunity to come back after tennis's suspension in a better shape? I think entirely possibly so. I mean, when he um, played his last Grand Slam, I think there was a feeling that he kind of rushed back into it and then injury waylaid him quite early on. And having what is going to be, you know, six months as a minimum out, if he actually spends that time recouping, um, then there's no reason he couldn't come back fully fighting fit. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I think Murray needs to take time, especially so because it got to the end of last year and it kind of too soon. And again, Murray's someone who's only 30, only 32 in comparison to someone who's like Roger Federer, who's still going strong at 38. So there is (laughs) potentially time for for Murray to come back stronger anyway. Um, Of course, Murray was the first British player to win a singles title since Fred Perry back in 2013 when he won Wimbledon. Um, But as you said earlier on, it kind of is looking like the start of the beginning. And for so long, you've been looking at kind of the new names coming through and a lot of it kind of looked like it would be someone like Milos Raonic at the start and no longer he's kind of at the top of the game. Who do you think tennis is kind of over do you think we'll be competing with the with the top three especially so no well i'm um homegrown talent and i've been following joanna conta for quite a while and i think she's a player who's always had the potential but she's never quite made it and it'd be good to see her finally go the distance and um claim a grand slam title again i think that would be the feeling of where when murray won we'd have the same sort of ecstasy about her uh, finally winning yeah i Um, think so I think, um, sorry to interrupt you there, with no, no. Um, 
with Contra as well. She's been, and it was a French Open a couple of years ago, where it looked like she was in a really, really good place to win the competition and then kind of crumbled at the last moment in a game where she really shouldn't have done. And I think that's something yeah. that you can kind of especially look at with Contra because maybe this time will be good for her to regroup and to think of course we say this none of these players are actually going to be training in any way near the normal kind of um federer posted on social media the other day of him doing trick shots at home essentially it's good that you're still getting out and about but you're right it's not the same as an actual tennis workout no I mean, it'd be I interesting to see sort of the shape in which the players do return because they can't work out in the same way they would have on the tour. It'll be interesting to see sort of who's kept up with it at home, perhaps, or even if they can keep up with it at home, and what sort of preparation a new tennis season will have in terms of, you know, physical fitness. I think that's definitely true as well, and that we're going to talk about in today's show as well. So an article came out, I believe, on Thursday this week, so the 2nd of April, where Kevin De Bruyne, who plays for Manchester City, turned around and said, the Premier League whenever it returns weeks to get back into match fitness and you'd imagine with yeah. tennis it's got to be something similar because of course all of these players are cooped up at home not playing tennis I mean Roger Federer lives seemingly in some kind of castle in the middle of Switzerland so he's got his own tennis court <laughs> for like many of the players further down the rankings they've probably not got that opportunity yeah. the women's side of the rankings so Ashley Bartley is in the world then Halep Pliskova, Italina, Andreska, Burtons, Bencic, Serena Williams, and Naomi Osaka round off the top 10. And then Joanna Conta is 14th contingent. So again, after kind of play resumes, and at the minute, the first major competition that is currently still meant to be going ahead is the US Open. Do we think that's particularly likely at this point? It's it's hard to really say. I mean, at the moment, the open is the, the venue is currently being used as a hospital uh, for the virus, and um, so it's hard to see realistically, unless there's a, you know a massive turnaround in um in how we deal with the virus. It's hard to see really it being requisitioned for tennis. Yeah, I do, I, I agree. I think it's at this point in time, especially as it's in, it's difficult to see a situation where come. September, everything's okay and they're going to be able to play. And I think as well, it kind of links in with what happened with the Olympics and when the pressure was building for Tokyo 2020 to kind of take stock and postpone the games at least for a year or two or a year rather. Um, the pressure was not even the fact yeah, will, will we be okay to resume kind of thing. It'll be the fact of, is there any integrity to holding the competition when none of the players are match fit? Exactly. I mean, tennis was struck earlier this year um, with the Australian Open, you know, accusations of putting players' health at risk with um, the wildfires. And it's hard to see them really pushing for another story, you know, having another tournament under the threat of massive health risks. It's hard to see tennis really recovering from that kind of, you know, um, marketing. Yeah, and I, th I think the, the issue you have with tennis as well is because it's such a... And the reason I said at the start of this segment is tennis has been so acutely impacted because of the nature of the competitions. Whereas with football, you can just go through every week, play a game. It's sorted by the end of the year kind of situation. With tennis competitions, 
plus all of the extra competitions as well on top of the Grand Slam. Paris, yeah. York, outside, without it being possible for it to rain or the games can't happen. And it's just very, very difficult to see with the 2020 season how it will be finished off. Of course, the Australian Open, again, was, as you say, profoundly influenced by the bushfires. And there was a stage where it looked like that probably shouldn't have happened either. So if we take this season as potentially being finished and not being able to be completed kind of in terms of the Grand Slams, the next thing that could possibly happen would be the ATP finals and the WTA finals, which take place kind of at indoor venues. The ATP finals take place at the O2 in London, which, and I believe off the top of my head, they take the top eight from the men's game and have the competition there. What would you think of that happening if none of the Grand Slams since the Australian Open had taken place? I mean, that's scheduled to take place mid-November. So it's realistically possible that it could go ahead. But if it were to be, I think, I don't know if you could realistically have it as a ranking event or I'd probably hold it as sort of, you know, to promote tennis more or to offer fans something after such a huge hiatus. I'd, I'd imagine it'd probably be better to re to you know properly start the season again next year. Would be my advice, assuming that we can and that the virus threat goes away. And I'd still like to see the event go ahead if it were possible. But I think sort of rules would have to be tweaked about how much it counted for and whether it really counted as a ranking final. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the thing with the WTA and ATP finals is that it's meant to be kind of a celebration of what's happened throughout that year. And at the moment for tennis, unless the US Open and the French Open go ahead uninterrupted, it's quite difficult to say, okay, well, these were the top eight players over this year and they deserve to go to this competition. Because if you take the, the world rankings as and you look at, say, for instance, the men's world rankings, it's a situation where you say, is that really fair? And you look at it and you say, probably not, because at the minute you're looking, Novak Djokovic, Rafael, Rafael Nadal, of course, at the top of their game, and then you get towards the bottom of the top 10. And it's a little bit more kind of, I wouldn't like to say sketchy, but would these players be there at the end of the year too? So like David Goffin, yeah. Gal Monfi, Matteo Bettarini, and you look just outside of the top 10 and you've got players there who will definitely be turning around and saying, well, if we'd had the rest of this season, would we have made it? So people like Denis Shapovalov, who's 16th in the world, kind of on 2,075 world ranking points. And again, that is something that might be an issue if the end of season tournament goes ahead. Will they have to kind of admit more people into the competition? I think that would be a necessarily bad thing because... Again, it gives tennis fans towards the end of the year something to look forward to. Perhaps that could be a, a way forward. I think that'd be a nice way to do it. I, having all these players, if they could come back together, just playing to give fans some tennis. But as you say, sort of rankings are prone to changing quite a lot throughout the year. And a ranking that's frozen in... When was it frozen? Was it last month? A ranking yeah, that was frozen, it, you know, frozen in March could be changed entirely by November. It's hard to realistically think it's fair to use a, you know, ignore the six month gap and just carry on as things were. I, I would still hold the event if the uh, help, the pandemic situation has improved, but I would make it more about sort of celebrating players and not having it as an event just confined to what had happened in this year. 
I would hold it as sort of an event to say that tennis is back. Yeah, I think that's, I, I mean, I agree 100%. I think it has to be a celebration of tennis if it's able to be held. And of course, we say all of this kind of on the proviso and very much in the back of our minds that public safety comes first and that if it's yeah. not possible, then it's not possible. But of course, we're a sport podcast and we're going to talk about sport. Um, before <laughs> before we leave you, Reese, um, of course, you've written a, a sensational number of articles for the ball. Are there any that you've written recently that you'd like to give a shout out? They don't have to be sport. They can be any of the sections. Feel free to publicise at your intent. Oh, goodness. Trying to think what I have done recently. <laughs> um, I did... What did we do? There was a lifestyle piece I did recently. I'm just advising people how to um, make the most of their time, you know, stuck at home or in quarantine. I think that's worth a look if you're feeling bored or, you know, you're struggling with exactly what to do. Um, But otherwise, you keep reading the board. There's a lot of good stuff still going on and it's not all coronavirus. So um, you can even get away from it with a good bit of bore articles. Definitely. I definitely agree. Um, Well, I think that just about wraps up the tennis section. Actually, no, it doesn't. I want one hot take from you. If you had to predict now, at this point in time, the Australian Open 2021, who is going to win the men's and the women's competitions? Ooh. Ooh, that's asking for trouble. Okay. Um, I'll go through who was on top currently. I think maybe Djokovic could come back. And as you say, he's still young and... You know, the things that tournaments are his for the taking. Um, you know, I'm going to go Williams as well. I think she wants to uh, equal and beat Margaret Court's record. So I can see her coming back on fighting form. But it's all up in the air. Let's see what happens. It's definitely, definitely all up in the air. If if I just put myself on the spot, and I do apologise for doing that to you, I would probably <laughs> agree with you on Novak Djokovic even though that really hurts my feelings as someone who is incredibly emotionally invested in Roger Federer's career. Um, so I'd probably go Novak Djokovic and Ashley Bartley simply because I think kind of home court adva- advantage for Bartley could potentially be huge, especially if tennis is only just coming back. And of course, she's yeah. still in the peak of her career. And I think Serena Williams will probably take a little bit more time to kind of recover from the hiatus. Um, before we leave you, Reese, um, would you like to shout out your Twitch account where people can find all the articles you write? Yeah, I can do. Um, so if you want to follow me, it's at Reese Goodall 496. That's Reese with a C. I'll be there posting lots of, uh, lots of bore articles and other stuff. So please give me a follow. On Friday, as we record this episode, it was announced that the Premier League will not resume until it's safe and appropriate to do so, bringing the Premier League in step with La Liga and Ligue 1 in suspending the competition for an indefinite period. Meanwhile, the Belgian Pro League has been abandoned and the current standings accepted as final. UEFA, however, has warned against the abandonment of leagues, suggesting that clubs from affected federations will not be permitted to enter European competitions next season. It was also announced by the Premier League and the PFA today that the Premier League will give £125 million to the English Football League and National Leagues and £20 million to the NHS. And the question I have for my two guests, Sam and Oliver, who have returned for the football segment, are basically what should happen next to the Premier League? Should it be voided? Should we introduce the World Cup-style format that has been spoken about over the past week? And what do you make of the announcements that have happened today? 
Um, I would say that one thing that we have to avoid is avoiding the league. I mean, you look at the reception that the avoiding of the leagues below the National League, North and South, has already had. And I just don't think that that would be able to happen in the Premier League or League One, League Two, the Championship. Um, I think the best solution for me would be to just wait until it's safe to start the season again and then um, continue from where we left off, finish the season. And then going into next season, I would say only play one round of games between each team. So only have however many um, 19 fixtures in a season and then just go off that and have one half season. So that would be, that would be my solution. Yeah, I actually agree with Sam quite a lot on this. So I agree that we should never be voiding the leagues or abandoning leagues or taking it how it is. It's imperative that we finish this Premier League competition, even if that means putting next year's competition uh, in jeopardy or changing up that, like you said. Because I think quite a few of the arguments from sides saying that we should abandon leagues have come from those in particularly poor performance, poor um standings in the table so luke i know you're a west ham fan and i'm sure you've been following what karen karen brady was saying about how we should abandon the league yeah uh that seems to be quite a lot based on i think west ham standing in the league and their potential relegation battle that they could get into i 100 percent agree with you um i'm a west ham fan but i i put myself in the um the camp of very disgruntled West Ham fan. Um, and what you said in your article on March the 15th, it was published, Oliver, I totally agreed with. I think what Karen Brady or Baroness Brady is to give her a full title um, was totally out of self-interest in that having the Premier League voided would only benefit teams who are currently struggling to stay in the division that they're currently competing in. Anyone competing at the top or looking at European football, it's just ridiculous, in all honesty, to consider voiding the competition. Um, my solution, um, what I think should probably happen, and I think kind of is the sensible way forward, is that we need to drop the idea. And I think the announcement that the, the Premier League made today is kind of starting to come around to that idea, is that we need to get kind of clear in the focus of our mind that the 2020-2021 season is not going to be normal anyway. So even if we just yeah. said, yep, the league is finished today, no more football until September, we're done, we'll come back for 2021, this season never happened. That for me just seems very, very much kind of optimistic thinking beyond belief because if you then take that position and you say no all the results have been expunged as they have done below national league north south level um you get yourself into a situation where if the next league can't happen the 2021 20 uh, the 2020 2021 season can't happen as it normally would you're then in a situation where the precedent has been set and then you'll have to cancel that season too and that yeah. just seems the knee-jerk reaction, in my opinion. And also, um, so, so much of the season has been played already. I mean, if you look at the decision to avoid the leagues below the National League North and South, some teams like, I think it was Jersey Bulls or something like that, have won every single game they've played and are already promoted by about 15 points. And so similar similar situations would apply to like um, 
Liverpool or West Brom or Leeds or teams like that. And so to void the league completely is just, in my opinion, out of the question. I totally agree. And I think the thing that was really problematic with what the FA did below, as we say, the first step of non-league, the second step of non-league, by voiding all of the results, is that you then have to turn around and say, okay, so what was the point in all of the football that's been played? Exactly. Um, what was the point and, in all the money spent by all the fans to go and see those games? Exactly, exactly that. And you say, okay, well, we're in a situation where we're pretending that this never happened, but it clearly did. And the example of Jersey Balls is kind of especially relevant because they've won 27 or 28 games out of 27 or 28. They had already mathematically been promoted into step nine. But now the season has been totally expunged, is the word they're using, and therefore they'll have to do it all over again next season. And obviously, mm-hmm. Jersey Balls, well, not so obviously, Jersey Balls are a new team. This is their first season in competitive English football. Um, and quite clearly, they're a very, very organised outfit. And the costs attached to running a football team in Jersey are clearly... Mm-hmm. more so than having a team competing in Coventry, for example. Yeah, the transport. And, yeah, and then you get into the situation of saying, well, what do they do next? Because if then next year they aren't promoted, you're in a very kind of uncomfortable situation. Um, one of the stories that really came into the limelight this week um, was the suggestion that the Premier League could be completed using a World Cup-style format of camps over in London and across the Midlands. So basically the premise of this idea would be you pick up all of the players, all of the coaching staff, you put them in quarantine for a set amount of time and then they all play the matches behind closed doors once they all have clearance that none of them have been impacted by the coronavirus. Um, Before I say my opinion on this, I'm intrigued to know, Oliver, your thoughts on the world. It sounds good in practice. Yeah, it sounds good in practice, but I'm not, in theory, sorry, but I'm not sure whether it would work that well in practice in terms of how well um, fans would respond to it because for lots of people, they hate the idea of behind closed doors games. There's no, the lack of atmosphere can really put players off as well. You can hear players like shouting down the pitch side microphones and you can hear every single thing they're saying. Um, And I think as well, what it does is it, purely from like a political perspective, having players going on comp- completing this would kind of be totally against what the government's saying in terms of everybody should be two metres apart um, because a lot of mm. people would still try and find some way to get together with their footballing friends and watch these matches because pub, whilst pubs have closed down, they could easily jump over to someone's house who has Sky Sports because... I, for example, don't have Sky, mm-hmm. but I know some friends who do, and I used to always go over to them to watch it. And just having this there for something they can watch would surely harm the fight against coronavirus rather than solve it, I think. Yeah, Sam, what do you think on on the kind of World Cup-style format that's been proposed? And it was mentioned in, I believe, The Observer this week. Mm-hmm. I would completely agree with Oliver on every single point that he said. I think yeah. it would be set a really bad precedent for our fight against coronavirus and that people will be interacting in order to watch and play in those games. And I think that to solve the league in such a way would just be counterproductive. And I think the only solution is to wait 
however long we have to until the league can resume. Yeah, and I, I, I again, this is not as fierce a debate as the Messi and Ronaldo one at the start of the podcast, which, <laughs> to be honest, when I planned this podcast, wasn't even meant to be a debate. I was just going to talk about the articles. Anyway, um, yeah, this this is the World Cup style format. This is perhaps the most reckless, ridiculous, pie-in-the-sky thing I have ever read. Um, it's my turn to get a little bit more passionate about the topic. Um <laughs> And there's so many reasons why. The first reason, okay, so we have the Premier League squads are made up of about 25 players each. If then we say each team can take 10 of the coaches and kind of backroom stuff, so that includes manager, assistant manager, coaches, physios, those kind of people, they also get to go. And then you also say that, okay, well, all of the games under this proposal would be televised. So we need all of the TV crews, all of the camera operators, so on and so forth. And they're all being placed in quarantine. That's fine. Okay. Already 25 times 20. I'm not very good at maths. That's quite a big number. That's a lot of people. You then have to think about the number of people who have to work at this quarantine site. You're also keeping them away from their families. And you're just in a situation where it's it's just ludicrous to think that Premier League footballers, and as much as people will berate them for getting paid so much money, which is a fair line of attack, Premier League footballers earn enormous amounts of money. And of course, they have to play a certain number of games per year. And typically, I'd agree with that. However, you can't then say, oh, the whole country has to be in lockdown. No one should go outside, stay two metres apart, and then demand that all of these people many of them with like young families, with partners, so on and so forth, have to then leave their families for two months to play football behind closed doors. It just makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. Can I just add on to that, Luke? I mean, it's also only being discussed in relation to the Premier League. I mean, as a fan of a club who's in League Two, what are we meant to do? Are we meant to just have a similar format where we all go into camps, which would also cost extortionate amounts of money, which mostly two League One clubs wouldn't be able to pay. Or we just meant to sit on the sidelines and let the Premier League do their thing while, once again, we're left kind of in the gutter with no one really caring about us. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I just... It's just a, it's a, a proposal that they thought, OK, your immediate response to the idea that the Premier League could be played in this World Cup format initially before you kind of scrutinize it on any level makes a certain degree of sense because it allows you to finish the games really quickly on paper at least it should reduce the risk that any of the players could be impacted by the coronavirus and it pleases the television companies because they get to broadcast the football that they're paid for on that level it makes sense but as soon as you kind of appreciate that all of these people are human beings and they're probably not going to want to do it anyway which is something that people who have kind of flouted this suggestion haven't taken into account at all. It just makes very, very little sense. Um, so obviously we're now in a situation where the Premier League has been suspended indefinitely, as is the case in um, Italy and Spain as well. Um, it's interesting to think of what could come next, because you've got Euro 2020 as it is still being called is happening next summer in 2021 um so now we're under pressure of how do we finish this season 
And then how do we get next season done in time for the European Championships mm-hmm. taking place all across Europe next summer? And Copa America at the same time. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I think there are two things that, in my opinion, are non-negotiable at this point, and that is um, finishing the Premier League season, as we've already talked about, and also having Euro 2021 uh, happening in its current format across the dates that it's currently currently meant to be staged in. I think that has to it's been moved already, and it, I don't think it can be moved again. So I think those are the two kind of immovable objects that we can't negotiate, and we have to fit everything between those two things, and we have to fit next season between those two events. And I think we just have to find a solution and a way of doing that, which I think the best way to do that would be to play half the number of games and just base the league table off that. I think one thing that definitely has to happen is the uh, cancellation this season of or oh, well next season sorry of a uh, cup competition so mm-hmm. definitely the league cup which i think has run its course overall anyways but perhaps the fa cup as well it could be useful just to postpone the competition for the whole of next season and start it again in the mm-hmm. 2021 to 2022 season as well as international friendlies, uh, qualifiers, because that's another thing you've got to think about. There'll be qualifiers yeah. soon for the World Cup will start. How that will be fit inside as well with international breaks. Yeah. It's going to be quite tough. And winter breaks as well. You need to get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think the kind of unspoken elephant in the corner um kind of element of all of this as well is that people aren't really thinking that in two years time we have the Qatar World Cup due to be held in December so whatever happens this season next season and the season after in in 2022 2023 the season is going to be split in half with the World Cup happening in the winter so in many respects this should although I suspect it probably won't be it should be the opportunity for leagues around the world to say, okay, we're going to operate with this revised calendar so that when the World Cup comes, it'll be the end of the season, then we start afresh and move the calendar back as it normally would be. Mm-hmm. But and, wouldn't that mean a six six month break without football between the Qatar World Cup and the start of the next season? No. So if if the season if if football is unaffected by all of this come twenty twenty two, what's going to happen is the season would start in September or the back end of August, rather. It start in August, break up kind of at the end of November. You didn't have the bit in the middle of the World Cup and then teams would return to their domestic fixtures after the World Cup. Mm-hmm. So the alternative you could potentially do is structure the seasons until the 2022 World Cup where you have the season finishing in the winter, then you have X number of months off and that way you kind of still fit it in. Um, but of course, it's not... And again, I'm kind of conscious of the fact that we're all kind of supporting English football teams in European competitions is that, of course, leagues around the world don't all run in the same way that the Premier League does, for example. So Major League Soccer, MLS in the um, over in America and Canada runs completely differently. It runs from kind of March time to December. And then when it's a World Cup year, they just have to deal with the fact that the World Cup's in the middle of their season. So, again, there are there are ways round the situation that we're in. But it's definitely kind of an interesting discussion 
going forwards. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about in terms of the Premier League on the show, and in future weeks we'll get into kind of talking about League One, League Two, the Championship, and all that kind of good stuff going forwards. But I just wanted to focus on the Premier League this week, and was the announcement that the Premier League will be giving the EFL and National League £125 million, and there will also be a donation to the NHS worth £20 million. Do you think it's good that football has finally kind of poured itself into the reality that something needed to be done about this or do you think it was too little too late i think it's good that they've done something i'm uh one of those people who says never once something's done you shouldn't criticize they've made the donation we should we shouldn't criticize the fact that they didn't make it sooner because i think that this is only the start this is only the beginning of what will happen We've seen as well that Premier League clubs are trying to get their players to take a 30% wage cut. I think that could be very beneficial to help the staff. Um, I think it's a step in the right direction and we just need to see the Premier League going further and further. Maybe this might spur on other businesses or other sports-related clubs or competitions to donate more of their money to the local businesses or other clubs which are struggling. Yeah, I agree completely. With Oliver once again, um, I mean, I think it's vital that at this stage the Premier League provide for teams left less well off than themselves. So teams, even with this money, are still going to go bust. But the, it's kind of a preventative measure because some teams that may have gone bust are now not going to because of the Premier League's money. Um, so I think the Premier League has done the only thing that it could have done, and I think it's made the right move. And as Oliver said, I think it set the precedent for other big businesses to do the same for small, privately run businesses around the country. So, yeah, I think it's, it was the only option. I agree. I think the um, the financial aspect for this, of course, across the world and businesses of all kinds, but especially sports as well, is so huge. And it goes beyond football and it goes beyond, of course, the Premier League. When people talk about the financial impacts of the coronavirus and its disruption on the Premier League, it's kind of only the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of the time, it's just people on Twitter saying, ha, 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 we don't want Liverpool to win the title. A lot of it, which I don't really understand, but there you go. Um, it's only the tip of the iceberg because as soon as you get into the lower rungs of the football pyramid and you get to a team like Barnet, who... Until recent yeah. times, people probably thought it had been run pretty well, but it only took them two weeks yep. for them to be in a really, really bad financial state because of there being no games and because they had no income. Mm -hmm. And I think that if this, obviously it's, it's never a good thing, the stuff that's happening, but if one thing can come out of the disruption that's happened at the minute, I think it needs to be a wake-up call for clubs around the country to realise that they have to start spending within their means yeah. because you can't be in a situation where things can go so badly so quickly. And it's not the case that all clubs in England and across the world are run badly. So there was an example as well where I believe it was um, Bromley who play in the National League. Their chairman has come out and said that all of their players, all of their staff, everyone attached to the club will be paid 100% of what they normally would. And of course, this isn't the biggest club in the world. They're a non-league team doing what they do but there's clearly still well run and I think that's something that could be interesting to look at in the future will it kind of bring about more sensible spending I suspect at the top level probably not okay. but I think it'll be interesting to see 
I mean, even without coronavirus, we've already had the cases of Barry and Bolton this season, both of whom have, well, in the case of Barry, have gone under, in the case of Bolton, have almost gone under. And I think that just shows the effects that financial mismanagement can have, not just on destroying a club, but also in destroying that club's staff's livelihoods and making them unemployed. And I think those are things that we really need to act against. And hopefully this will, as you say, Luke, hopefully this will spur on greater and more responsible financial management going into the future. Before we move into the final section of the show, which is, I, I hope you've prepared for this, otherwise you might feel like you've been put on the spot, um, <laughs> where we're going to be talking about our top five sporting moments of all time. Before we get into that, I just wanted to ask you a quick question, of which I am putting you on the spot, because I just put Reese on the spot and it only feels fair. Um, so far this season, of course, um, Oliver, you're a Blackburn fan. Sam, yep. you're a Colchester United fan. Mm-hmm. Um what has been, it doesn't have to be attached to your club, but what has been the standout season of the 2020 season to this point, kind of football-wise, any storyline, pick pick your fighter, so to speak. Do you mean greatest, greatest season is in, like, of any club around the globe? Or No, so, like, the, the best, kind of, the highlight of your season so far from this year. Um, for me... It's actually one of the things that has made it into my top five 40 moments of all of my lifetime. And that is a very personal moment for me. And that was um, going to see Manchester United against Colchester United in the League Cup quarterfinals. As much as the League Cup, as Oliver said, um, I might slightly disagree with him once again, um, as much as the League Cup might have run its course and might be a bit of a dead competition. The atmosphere on that day, even though we went down 3-0, the fact that a little club like Colchester in League 2 can make it can make it to a League Cup quarterfinal or the quarterfinal of any cup competition still shows, the, in my opinion, the magic of the cup. And we took 6,000, 7,000 supporters up to Manchester that day. We usually get 3,500 as an average home gate. And it just is the kind of event that can unite a town, United City. And for me, the atmosphere on that day was something that I've never experienced and may never experience again. And so for me, that's the best sporting moment of this season. So, yeah. Um, for me, I'm going to sort of cheat a bit and just say in general that the one thing that's made me happy this season is Blackburn are looking like a club want to win things again. In the past few years, uh, we've been pretty bad in terms of getting relegated from the Premier League all the way down to League One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we've finally bounced back up to the Championship. And just this season, we are pushing for the playoffs. Where are you whether, we will, whether we will get it, it's tough. It's a very hard competition to get anywhere near the top six in. I think there's more points between the top of the playoffs and the relegation zone than there is between Liverpool and like fourth place or something. It's very tight league. But Blackburn this season with uh, a solid squad and without the star player Bradley Dack have managed to put together quite a few solid performances against clubs who spend considerably more money than we have in the past few years. And I think it's getting close to the time where 
the town, like you said, Sam, with Colchester, they're starting to believe that the club could actually go somewhere again. Mm. Are the Venkis still in charge of Blackburn? They are still in charge, uh, but they've taken away most of their sort of men from controlling the decisions of the clubs. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of more they've, of a... Yeah, they've seen it more, less of a way for them to make money by selling Jordan Roads and the like. Mm-hmm. More of a way to invest, I think. Yeah. In the town. Um, yeah, both, both really good shouts. If I had to pick a storyline, um, unsurprisingly, nothing to do with West Ham because it's been a pretty... No. <laughs> miserable league, uh, a miserable year rather on so many levels. However, what I would say is that Coventry City currently flying high in League One is definitely something to look at if the season resumes. Of course, they're a, they're a club that has been undergoing a seriously bizarre number of twists and turns throughout recent seasons. So they were relegated to League Two a couple of years ago. They bounced back via the playoffs. Um, they were then kind of forcibly removed from the Rico Arena and now play at St Andrews because of a dispute between Wasps, um, Sissu, who are the people who own Coventry City, and Coventry City Council. So they now play at St Andrews in Birmingham. And despite all of that, despite not having one of the best teams in the division, despite having a much, much smaller budget than teams like Portsmouth and Sunderland, they're right at the top of the League One and are looking very, very good under Mark Robbins. So that is one of the stories I would look out for as we go forward kind of towards potentially if the season is resumed, what would be the end of the 2019-20 season? I think that just about kind of sums up our football chat. However, I do suspect that football will return as we talk about our top five sporting moments of our lifetimes. Although we'll move on to the next topic. So... I invited Sam and Oliver to come up with a list of the top five sporting moments of their lifetimes. Um, these can be anything. They can be really, really well-known events such as Super Saturday at London 2012, or they could be something a little bit more niche as kind of one of the ones I have gone for is. So Oliver, Sam, who wants to start us off with their first moment on your list? Yeah, I can start off. Uh, my top sporting memory is not a football one. But it is quite recent. It is from last summer. It was the Cricket World Cup uh, final in England, where England, on perhaps the closest of mar by the closest of margins, beat New Zealand in a super over to win the Cricket World Cup. Mm-hmm. Is that is that your favourite of all time, Oliver? That is my favourite moment of all time. I'm not sure if we're supposed to start at five and work our way up, but I've gone for number one straight off the bat. You that's can start from number one. That's fine. I think that's, that's a good my... moment. Yeah. Um, I'm not someone who has ever really followed cricket particularly closely. I kind of do now just because I guess it's kind of my job to um, at the minute. <laughs> but on that day, so that that you might remember as well, was the day of the 2019 Wimbledon final. Um, I was not watching that. <laughs> yeah. And the, if next week I was thinking of maybe maybe talking about our like top five worst moments, kind of sporting moments. Um, I have so much of an emotional kind of baggage in Roger Federer, and that was the day that Federer lost the final yeah. in such kind of agonising fashion. Oh, 
and I was just so heartbroken. And everyone was like, "The cricket's great. The cricket's great. You got to watch the cricket." And I was just so crestfallen that I just turned my TV off and went upstairs. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so tell us more about kind of. I'm sure okay. most people would have seen it, but what happened? So, to- yeah, just to do a quick summary, England were through to the final after a pretty. It was it was an okay um, run in the competition. They were firm favourites going into the uh, tournament. I think I wrote an article for Steph, the previous sports editor, on why England should and will win the World Cup. Um, so we got through to the final against New Zealand, who were probably not even the fav- were like the fourth favourites. India and Australia were behind them, but they were in front of them, but they got beaten earlier in the tournament and it started off okay the first innings was New Zealand's were like in all the stories in all the documentaries the shows you see it doesn't really focus on them as much they got a pretty standard total which was very beatable at the time it was about it was in the two, mid 200s mm-hmm. high 200s everyone thought England easy they should easily be beating that and then it just started going incredibly wrong there's Jason Roy Johnny Bairstow Joe Root all fell and were about 50 for three, 50 for four. And it just, it looks like it wasn't meant to be. Um, and it was only until it was the duo, everyone's favorite duo now of Joss Butler and Ben Stokes stepped onto the pitch and they just went berserk with the amount of runs they, sh- they scored. Got it. It was looking like we might just scrape a victory. And then of course, Butler got out and a few more wickets started falling got towards the last over of the 50 over match i think we needed something quite high as well as about 18 off the last over um ben stokes was hitting some good shots i think it was about nine off three was what we needed and then i kid you not this is why it's one of the top memories for me the most bizarre moment you will ever see in any match of cricket ever in the ben stokes hit the ball started running it got thrown to him he dived into the crease and the ball bounced off his bat as he dived and went for four more runs. Hmm. Essentially, that made the match for us. It made England draw in this match. Draw. We drew on runs. Uh, we went over to a super over, which for people who don't know is basically a one over where you have to score as many runs as you can. It's used in the in Indian Premier League as a way to sort of tie break. And no, it's never really used in one day's 50 overs because the chance of it happening is so unlikely mm-hmm. so people were scrambling to try and find it in their uh, google like googling what is a super over went out um england got a pretty decent score i think it was about 14 or 15 fast forward to new zealand's over joffrey archer england's people would say stolen from uh the west indies bowler but the hot shot of a tournament everyone's favorite fast bowler uh now I'd say, came bowling in after two balls. I think they had they had something about 10 runs off two, so it was looking horrible for England. Somehow we managed to scrape it through. Last ball, Joss Butler with a great stumping to stop them getting the last run. Me and my brother off the couch, screaming in celebration, jumping up and down. I think I've never had so much adrenaline pumping through my veins. Never had so much at stake in a match than that mm-hmm. that is a long-winded explanation but go and watch it i think they are showing it on sky sports on easter sunday actually the full thing couldn't recommend watching it anymore that's a good yeah. shout 
Definitely a good shout. Sam, do, do you want to start from number five or number one? Totally up to you. Um, I'll start from number five, if that's all right. Sure. Uh, building it up a bit. But um, So for me, number five was kind of a big sporting moment for us all, and it was in the 2016 Rio Olympics. And um, for me, it was Usain Bolt winning the 100 metres again in his, what would be his last Olympics. And that for me was just kind of the epitome of sporting talent, the epitome of sporting greatness in that man who hadn't had a great four years uh, running up from London. Um, and Justin Gatlin, this former drugs cheat and possibly still drugs cheat, um, had had four great years. He'd won countless number of times. He might've even beaten Bolt, I'm not too sure, in one of the world championships running up to the Rio Olympics, but Bolt proving the great man that he is, the great sportsman that he is, completely clean record, has never taken any performance enhancing drugs in his life. Stepped up one final time to prove all the doubt was wrong, all the people that had doubted him around various injuries that he's had across his career and various setbacks that he's had. He cast all those doubts aside and came through for one final great performance and wiped Gatlin aside in his usual kind of easy running style that made it just look like it was a simple dog in the park for him. So yeah, for me, that's number five. That's, that's also a really good shout. I, I think kind of the Olympics memories that stick out are the ones that kind of everyone kind of mm-hmm. sticks around and watch, watches together. And it's always the things like the hundred meters, the relays, some of the, some of the cycling as well, especially when kind of your nation's yeah. athletes are kind of at the top. Um, and the kind of the kind of people that the Olympics creates as well, like Bolt, like Michael Phelps, who are just at the top of their sport and are just complete and utter almost legends of of, of the world, almost. Yeah, and I think I think with um, Bolt's victory in 2016 as well, it was so wrapped into the narrative of. Um, kind of Bolt versus Gatlin and it felt like it was the world for for Bolt versus a very very select few people supporting Gatlin um, especially mm-hmm. kind of outside of America so yeah. that kind of added to the kind of narrative as well it was like a siege mentality the only kind of comparable thing I can think of is the mentality that Jose Mourinho and his kind of plomp was able to get kind of at Chelsea and teams like this and it was like yeah it's us against the world Mm-hmm. And Bolt kind of delivered on the on the biggest on the biggest stage. Um, my number five, I'll start from the bottom and work my way up. Although I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable with my list anyway, but we'll go with it anyway. Um, my number five was Roger Federer winning the Wimbledon in 2017. So obviously it had been quite a while since since Federer had won at Wimbledon. Um, quite a while since he'd kind of been at the top of Grand Slam tennis and he got to the final and he beat Marin Cilic who I've seen play live and he's an absolute colossus of a man um the score in that one was 6-3 6-1 6-4 and as I've said repeatedly throughout this podcast Roger Federer is someone who I've always kind of looked at and just thought wow you are just insurmountable class and I feel like Federer is one of the most popular players on the tour has always has been probably always will be and it was just a point of like right let's see if he can do it and when he did it it was just kind of like the emotional release that he'd finally kind of gone back to the top of the 
top of the game of tennis. Um, so yeah, that one really stuck out mm. for me personally. Yeah, I think I think um, Roger Federer for me, I think it's again almost like the Messi versus Ronaldo debate in, debate in terms of Federer versus Nadal. Federer is just, I mean, you've watched him live. I've never had the pleasure of doing that. He's just such a beautiful player to watch. I mean, his all-round game, he doesn't focus on power, although he can do that. He's just, his accuracy of his shots, his drop shots are absolutely delightful. Just his all-round game is just kind of characterised by his grace and just the beauty of his play. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you on that, Luke. Awesome. Um, what we'll do now is we'll go through number four and number three a little bit more quickly because I'm just a little bit conscious of time. So, Oliver, what was your number four pick and number three pick? Okay. Um, so my number, well, number five and four for me because I only did my first one. My number five was another sporting moment, well, cricket moment of the summer when Ben Stokes again uh, managed to beat mm-hmm. Australia in the test match Yeah. Uh, during the Ashes. It was probably one of the highlights of the Ashes for England because we didn't have the best series. Basically what happened, I'll do a quicker rundown, was that England were losing pretty heavily to Australia and it was looking like we were going to lose the Ashes again um, or Australia were going to reta- retain them. Ben Stokes came out on the last day, managed to hit some shots, which for a test cricket you just do not see these shots in test cricket. He was again, he had a strike rate of over 100, 150, which is like a T20 rate strike rate. Managed to beat Australia in the most ridiculous fashion. And but I think what made this a much better moment for me was the fact that I was at the next Ashes match in Manchester and the amount of heckling that we were able to give to the Australian fans for that one day only before they would, again, stamp on us and beat, the, beat us in the ashes. The amount of heckling we could do was just perfect, and it was a great time to be an England fan in the ashes, even for a few short days. Mm-hmm. Um, I can go to my next one, number four, no, my number four pick. Yeah, sure, go for it. Uh, this is a, another sort of more personal one. It's Blackburn getting back up into championship. I've actually I've put Champions League here. That's wishful thinking, I think. <laughs> um, so I was actually at the final match of a season where we were against, I think it was Oxford. We were we're in with a chance of winning the league one, but we won, but Wigan beat us, so we finished second and got automatic promotion. But again, as uh, you said, Sam, with the Manchester versus Colchester match, it was so many people came. It was packed. I think the stadium would be got the record attendance it had had since the Premier League. So many people were there, just excited that Blackburn were finally doing something good again. We had some good players who actually looked like they want to play for Blackburn and aren't just using us as a way to get so much money. I'm looking at Leon Best there, and <laughs> um, so it was a good way just to boost my confidence, boost my support and love for Blackburn again. And it was the final match I went to before I left sort of the area to come to university. So it was a good way, a good send off for me to be like, yes, I'm going to university and they're, they're a championship club and I'm not a league one club. Mm-hmm. So there you are too. Yeah. Good shouts. Um, Sam, your number, 
four uh, and three, as it would be. My number four, as I've already touched on, so I'll go over it very briefly again, was um, Manchester United against Colchester United. Just kind of the atmosphere on that day, the feeling that a town had been united around one moment, around one team, that just really struck a chord with me. And just being there, as Oliver said on that day, the kind of atmosphere around around the place was just absolutely incredible. And so that would be my number four. My number three would be South Africa's Rugby World Cup win in 2019 against England. It's controversial as that might sound. I know that probably the vast majority of those listening will be England fans. But I'm part South African myself. And supporting South Africa on that day, I was supporting them because not not really because of a sporting reason, but more because of a political reason. Because South Africa today is still, even after the legacy of Nelson Mandela, the 1995 World Cup, South Africa is still such a divided country. There's still huge, huge poverty around the townships areas and huge division in wealth between white people and black people. So to see a black captain in Sia Khaleesi lifting that trophy and representing what the country could become in kind of a united team achieving its goals in winning that World Cup for me it was just an absolutely incredible moment so I'd say my number three position that's definitely a great shout I wrote a really really good article on that as well which you'll be able to find on the uh, on the um, Borsport website if you search for it or if you go on Sam's writer's page um my two picks so number four i have this is probably an obvious choice for me um i went for the 2012 championship playoff final which was west ham united two blackpool one um people look back on this as west ham fans and say what a great season it was in a way that i find totally bizarre because we had by far the best team in the league um, by far the most money to spend on the league, by far the highest wage bill, and we finished third and never really looked like winning the competition. Um, so as you do, you go into the playoffs. We won the first kind of semi-final, um, 5-0 against Cardiff on aggregate. And then we went to the final at Wembley, exceptionally tense. We took the lead on 35 minutes through Colton Cole, who I seriously rate as one of my favourite West Ham players ever. Oh, what a man. And then um, Blackpool equalised on 48 minutes through Tom Ince, which was a little bit controversial given kind of his father's relationship with West Ham. Mm-hmm. And then with just three minutes left, a bit of a goal mouth scramble. It looked for the life of the game that it was going to go to penalties. It did not. Ricardo Vazte, 87 minutes, scored. Wembley erupted. West Ham back in the Premier League. And the rest is history. I think a lot of people kind of earmark that game down as one of the most important in the club's history, because had West Ham not won that game, it looked very, very, very bad financially for the club. And I think we probably would have been one of the teams that dropped like a stone after that, had we not won that game. Mm -hmm. Um, My pick for number three, and I've just changed my mind. So my pick for number three (laughs) is another Wimbledon final. This time, Wimbledon 2013 men's final, Andy Murray winning his first title um well first Wimbledon title that is I think it kind of explains itself there'd been such anticipation and throughout Murray's career he'd come so so close to winning things but never was able to quite manage it and kind of built up this reputation in the English in uh, specify English press as someone who 
was good, but was never actually going to win anything. So therefore, we shouldn't really support that much. Um, and it was just so wonderful and so brilliant that he was finally able to make his impression on the top table of Grand Slam tennis. Of course, the year before he won the US Open, he won he won um, Olympic gold as well at London 2012 which there's a great article. I say great. I wrote the article. There's an article on the website, which I recommend you read. Um, so yeah, that comes in at number three for me personally. Um, so now we're just down to number two and number one and whatever kind of Oliver has left. So do you want to go through your, go through yep. your picks now? So my next one is, I'm sure, well, it might be on one of your lists. Um, England beating Colombia in the penalty shootout in the World mm. Cup. 2018 so england are infamous it was for... scenes absolute scenes to be yes honest. england um, are infamous for being yeah. awful at penalty shootouts yeah. um so when it <laughs> when colombia equalized take it to the penalties i was not i was not hopeful i was thinking okay it's going to be another i think it was italy well uh, in the previous euros when we lost pretty heavily in the penalty shootout there and the knockout rounds um but Jordan Pickford came out, did some great saves, and basically is that the saves he made that match are probably keeping him in the England team for the next tournament, I'd say. And it was just in general, that World Cup, the whole experience was just one of the best summers of sport I think I've ever experienced. Everybody was just happy, it was sunny, they were out drinking, just having a great time, celebrating England, not being divided. And it was just a really good time to be a sports fan, I thought, that World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my final pick, which is my number two, <laughs> this is a weird order I'm going in, is not one which I actually support in terms of it doesn't really affect me, but I think it is probably one of the best sporting moments of the past 20 years is Sergio Aguero's last minute goal to win the first title for Man City in I want to say 2011-2012 if I'm correct Um, Mm. so it was again QPR last minute goal was needed otherwise their arch rivals Man United would once again win the league so it was already set up so perfectly for something big to happen on that day and it was just Sergio Aguero as well as one of my is probably my all-time favorite footballer and the moment he scored and you see it turn over to Man United and Alex Ferguson's face and see them just drop was so satisfying because I thought Man United was such a smug club back in when they had the Alex Ferguson era and to see Sergio Aguero scoring that goal, ripping his shirt off, running down the pitch in celebration before Man City were the club that everybody dislikes. It was just a really good moment to see. And I don't think a moment that tense will be replicated again in the Premier League for quite some time. Yeah. So those are my last two. <laughs> Both great shouts. I think kind of the World Cup one was really, really incredible. And I agree with you 100%. I don't think if Pickford... I think if England had lost that game and Pickford hadn't made the penalty saves, I'm not even sure he'd be in the squad anymore, if I'm being totally honest. Um, And then with the Aguero moment, I remember I was... (laughs) This is a weird memory, but I was at the cinema that day with my parents. Um, It was 2012 because West Ham weren't in the league that year because Rob Green had gone 
to QPR and was in goal for a goal. Um, I just remember kind of walking out the seminar and thinking, what on earth has gone on there? And then you watch Match of the Day and it was such an iconic moment. And it's one of the very, very few, I think, iconic Premier League moments from the last 10 or so years. Yeah, it's it's a shout. It's the scream of Aguero. That is the moment I think of when I think of last minute winners. Definitely. That scream. 100%. My top two picks, one of them will be fairly well known. The other one, not so much. So I'm going to start with number two. It was the 2019 IIHF World Championships in Slovakia, Team GB4, France 3. Now, I'm expecting that neither of you are going to be particularly familiar with the game or potentially the sport that I'm talking about. Is it hockey, I think? It is ice, ice hockey. hockey, yes. Yeah. So, of course. basically, what happened here, Team GB, for the previous three seasons, had been promoted through the World Championships to the top flight against all the odds and with a squad mainly of players who play in the in the EIHL, which is our kind of top top league in, in the UK. Mm. Obviously, going to this competition, we hadn't been in the top flight for many, many, many years. We haven't won anything at the top flight since kind of the 1940s when we won the Olympics, which, again, a little bit bizarre, but there we go. Um, so it wasn't looking good. And everyone who knew anything about hockey thought that we were going to get absolute hammered in every single game. And for a large part, that was true. So I'll run you through the results. Um, in the first game of the competition, we lost 3-1 against Germany. In the second game, we lost 8-0 against Canada. Third game, we lost 9-0 against Denmark. We then lost 6-3 against the United States, 5-0 against Finland, and 7-1 against Slovakia. Throughout the competition, and I say this kind of teary-eyed and emotional um, because it was just so incredible, the players that we had worked so, so hard and were so incredible. And Ben Bounds, who is the netminder for Team GB, was having the tournament of his life. So it really was David versus Goliath stuff. You couldn't criticise. Even like 6-3 against the USA. Great Britain scored three goals against America. Absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, so the situation was we get to the final game of the tournament and the way it works is there are two groups. The two bottom teams are relegated out of the top flight. And we went into the final game needing a victory over France. France hadn't been relegated from the top pool for years and years and years and it wasn't exactly looking likely. To cut a long story short, Team GB come back from behind to send the game to overtime, which is sudden death, golden goal situation. There's a, there's a face-off in GB's defensive end. The, the puck is knocked all the way down into France's kind of offensive zone, defensive zone, rather. GB somehow miraculously run the, won the race to the puck, knocks it across the goal, and then Davy Phillips at the back stick with perhaps the most ridiculous moment of ecstasy I've ever seen. Um, yeah, it was just amazing. We won 4-3 in overtime, stayed in the top flight, and the rest is history. See, if I if I liked ice hockey, I could tell that would be one of those that would probably be in my top few. I do love a good underdog story. I'll be honest, I absolutely screamed when <laughs> when the goal went in. I absolutely screamed because it was just frankly ridiculous. Um, I'll move on to my top moment. Um, 
now and then we'll get onto Sam's in just a moment's time. My top moment for me is very personal. It is the only sports fixture that has kind of reduced me to tears. Um, West Ham United 3, Manchester United 2, the final ever game at Upton Park. Um, I could romanticise this game for as long as we've been recording this podcast, which is already too long for what I planned, but that's fine. Um, it was just the most incredible victory at the most incredible stadium. And there'd been such a bizarre build-up to the game, attacked by West Ham fans, and then the game being delayed and it being so late. And obviously we weren't even meant to play Manchester United in the last game at Upton Park anyway. Then it transpires that we would, and we were still in contention for European football. We come from behind in the last 10 minutes to take the game. Absolute unrivaled scenes. Cannot kind of compete with that, in my opinion. I've got the best list. You're all losers. Anyway, Sam, your top two. Um, for me, we haven't at Colchester United have a mo- had a moment that is really kind of, kind of emotional for me in my lifetime, like you, Luke, or like you. Oliver, um, as from when I've started supporting the club, we've successively got relegated from the championship down to League One and now we're in League Two. So I don't really have a moment that is really <laughs> kind of strikes a call for me in that respect. So for me, my two top moments are moments uh, around Dutch football, which I'm half Dutch myself. And for some reason, I've always kind of more identified with my Dutch side than I have with my English side. And so for number two, I've got in the 2014 World Cup, I've got in the Netherlands five, Spain one, which I'm sure you both remember as one of the opening games of the tournament. And for me, that was just the ultimate revenge for the 2010 mm-hmm. World Cup final, where we went down one nil in the 118th minute to a Iniesta goal. For me, that that five one game had absolutely everything: retribution, revenge. We just absolutely ripped them apart. Arjen Robert, uh, Robin was just absolutely exceptional. He drove past Ramos, past PKs to score two goals. There was Robin Van Persie's flying header over Casillas, which is one of the goals of my lifetime. And just, yeah, that, that game for me was just absolutely incredible. I'm not sure I've ever been as happy as I was then. Um, apart from my number one moment, which wasn't really a moment, but kind of a a progression of moments across an entire season, which was last season, and which was Ajax's run through the Champions League, Mm. which it might sound like a weird choice for number one, but for me, I've never felt, might sound a bit weird considering I was only 17 at the time, but I've never felt so proud almost of my nation in that moment. I mean, as a Dutchman, success on the club stage has been quite rare in the last few years. I mean, Ajax or... Any Dutch team last won the Champions League in 1995. In my opinion, this team kind of made up for it. It kind of, in my eyes, epitomised all the good things about Dutch football. We had a kind of a core of good young players in like Matthijs de Ligt and uh, Frankie de Jong, who just played beautiful football. Um, I think their football, I might be slightly biased, but the football that they played was the most beautiful football and that's kind of what I value in watching a game of football as I'm sure I've shown with my Messi debate in the Messi debate they kind of just played such beautiful football the kind of triangles they played moving up the pitch and it was they played such beautiful football but 
being such a young team that made it all the better because just I don't know their youth their vitality just kind of I'm almost breaking up talking about it even and thinking about that Spurs game I mean that was for me if we're going to do the worst moments of my sporting life that was probably the worst night of my life I'm going to be honest um, to see such a good young core of Dutch players who played such beautiful football go down to what was a rugged, horrible, disgusting, <laughs> idiotic. I, I, I would use some pretty horrific words if this wasn't a podcast. Spurs team. But yeah, that, that Ajax team epitomised to me everything the sport is meant to be. All, it gave me all the emotions that sport is meant to give you. The win against Juventus, the win against Real Madrid, the underdog story. But at the same time, being underdogs, they're not kind of fighting tooth and nail for the win, but being underdogs that are actually outplaying the Goliaths, outplaying the people you expect to win. It was just that whole season. I don't know. It just kind of, yeah, yeah, just incredible. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, that's great. Um, um, I, I, I've got to say, as a West Ham fan, I, I would also put that defeat down as one of the worst kind of sporting moments ever. <laughs> Horrific. But no, that Ajax team was just so, so good. And what I, what I really appreciate about kind of um, Ajax especially is how they develop all these world-class players. And then they continue to have such a relationship with the players that then go on to leave to kind of what you would conventionally define as Greener Grass. So like, had like a massive send-off for him. And I think that's always something that's really, really nice to see. Yeah. And they, they don't kind of see themselves as one of the top teams in football. They accept that they're a selling club. They accept that they're going to have to sell these players on. And these players don't kind of fight tooth and nail to move either. It's no kind of Carlos Tevez situation or whatever, where players kind of just just sit on the bench, refuse to come onto the pitch. Just players at Ajax, they know they're going to move on at some point and they do so in such a beautiful way. I'm sure. It's just a beautiful, beautiful club. I'm sure uh, Luke won't want you bad-mouthing Carlos Tevez like that. <laughs> I'll let it slide on this occasion, but ordinarily, this would where I'd snap back. <laughs> Look at the, 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 this is a total change of topic as we end kind of the show, but my, I'm, I'm very kind of fiscally... Um, when I say this, I'm talking about my own money. What I'm saying is I'm very tight, essentially. Um, I never spend <laughs> Good thing. I never spend money on myself. Um, I never buy myself things. Um, but I just fall. It's kind of, I think, a couple of months ago, I, I bought a 2006 Carlos Tevez West Ham shirt for a, <laughs> a silly amount of money for a used, mm-hmm. not in the best condition football shirt. But I love it. And Carlos Tevez is an absolute hero. And I will not accept I can slander have a, of any kind. Very, very big debate on you in a future episode, which I've had with my West Ham supporting housemate on why West Ham are the biggest cheats in Premier League history. But that can be saved for another episode. The biggest cheats in Premier League history. That can be saved for another episode. I'm setting it up for another great debate. The, the issue, you say this, is that I, I arguably wouldn't have much of a leg to stand on. In that yeah. debate, there's not much you can say. There's not much you can say. Although, what the the argument? I mean, we are by far exceeding the length of of podcast that I had expected. But what I would say on that topic is that West Ham, in a court of law or a court of appeal, or in the view of the FA, were never found guilty of anything 
Instead, they resolved an out-of-court settlement, and therefore we must find that you are proven innocent until proven otherwise. Um, well, <laughs> I am operating on the court of public opinion in which West Hammer cheats. Anyway. <laughs> sorry, sorry, when was this court 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 situation? Okay, we will, we will very briefly explain the story. So, Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascarano joined West Ham from... I want to say River Plate or Boca Juniors. I'm pretty sure it was Boca Juniors. Um, back when West Ham were managed by Alan Pardew. Um, Tevez's agent and Mascarano's agent, they were this, agented by the same person. That's definitely not a word. Um, had been trying to get them over to Europe for, for a long, long time, but hadn't been able to because he partially owned the players. So he partially owned the rights to the players. It was like 50% the club, 50% the agent, um, which of course in Europe... And most importantly, in England, very illegal at the time and still is. Um, the reason that West Ham were able to sign the players was because kind of allegedly, I stress allegedly, um, we didn't really see that as much of a barrier and just signed them anyway. Um, and then obviously the rest is history. So once the player gets to Europe, you've kind of, for want of a better word, laundered the fact that they've been partially owned by their agents. And then they go on to move to Manchester United, Liverpool, and the rest is history. Of course, the, the court settlement we're referring to is because Carlos Tevez, as the story is told, um, and it's a story that I pretty much subscribe to and is why I have a Carlos Tevez shirt hanging in my cupboard, um, saved West Ham almost single-handedly from relegation at the expense of Sheffield United, who were then relegated fell through the floor to League One um, and have only just recovered. Um, and the out-of-court settlement was between West Ham and Sheffield United, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. There is more. Uh, another thing you need to consider is that Carlos Tevez, when he did single-handedly, uh, I think he scored 10 goals or something in the last half of the season. Yeah. Something like that. Something ridiculous. Um, what was more contentious when I actually read up on it more was that um, in past, like precedents have been set in other leagues, and I'm not sure if it was in England when stuff like this happened with player disputes over transfers or contracts or whatnot, and they have suspended the player from playing for the club um, until it's resolved. This did not happen with Carlos Tevez. He was, they made the judgment that they'd broken the law or what, broken rules and whatnot, and he was still allowed to play for them rather than banning him from the competition at least until the end of a season which i thought was particularly damning for the premier league i think it was a dark moment in their history for that to happen mm-hmm. hence why west ham that cheats it's it's certainly kind of an interesting topic and i'm i'm not have, i'm not a partisan in kind of <laughs> in haven't haven't west ham since one like the European Fair Play Award and have yes. entered yeah. the Europa League as a result or something Yeah, like so the, the greatest irony of that story is that under Sam Allardyce, perhaps the most <laughs> anti-flair pay manager you could possibly find, we also did... Also a rule breaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't even want to get into that. Um, we then entered the Europa League first qualifying round or whatever it was via the Fair Play League. Um, so yeah, there are many, many twists and turns in the history and... Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, they got their revenge uh, early this year, didn't they? With a nice ruled out VAR goal. That was 
I mean, yeah, the the, the West Ham Sheffield United um, rivalry, if we dare call it that, is really interesting because a couple of years ago when we still played at Upton Park, there was a at the time it would have been the Capital One Cup match between Sheffield United and West Ham. I think Sheffield United was still maybe in League One, teetering in the kind of bottom half of the Championship. Either way, they weren't the team that we see today. Um, it went to penalties. All of the chicken run, which, if you don't know, is the little stand at West Ham where kind of a lot of the more kind of ex- eccentric characters would sit at Upton Park, if you catch my drift. Um, there were lots of Carlos Tevez masks in attendance. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting, quite ridiculous kind of story from English football, which, as you point out, we should probably return to at a later Yes. date um before we go and i dread to think how long this podcast will be in total but if you've got to the end thank you so much you're an absolute hero um before we go i just wanted to give oliver and sam the chance to promote whatever they'd like to promote whether that be social media the bore feel free hey. um yeah so i have two things to plug here so first of all as this is a ball podcast or connected to the ball sport i'd highly recommend you go and check out the ball games another section of the ball where we talk about video games, we do discussions, but we are, I think, working quite closely with the sports section this year. We have a video coming out quite soon, I hope, um, where we've recreated some Premier League and international matches on FIFA. And then finally, I would like to plug my own podcast, which I've started with the former games editor, Hamish, called The War Targets, available at Anchor. Spotify, all the good sort of things. Check us out at the Warthog Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> go and check out the Boar. Hey, great institution. Yeah, that's my plug. Fair enough. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to share the past probably two hours with you at this point. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for both coming on. It's really, really appreciated. This was, of course, the first ever episode of the Boar Sport podcast, and I believe potentially the first ever kind of Boar section podcast in recent years. So hopefully it was well received. If you ever want to come on the podcast, please do join the Boar Sport writers group, and I would be li- and I would be delighted to talk to you about that. I'm not going to cut it out. It's two hours in. Who cares? My name has been Luke James. I have been joined today by Reese Goodall, Oliver Barsby, and Sam. It has been a wild ride in which we've talked about tennis, the Premier League, Carlos Tevez, and much, much more. But until next time, see you later and have a wonderful day. <laughs>